Hey, happy football day. Uh, I, ho- I hope your team wins. Is it like, what is it, the, the Rams and the Bengals? You know, I was reading about this, and they said uh, never in Super Bowl history outside of last year and this year did uh, one of the teams have, like, home field advantage. Did you guys hear that? And so I saw the commissioner of the NFL, he wrote this letter out, said, hey, we're going to make sure that never happens again so the, the future Super Bowls will all be happening in Dallas. <laughs> I know nothing about football, but I know you're not supposed to like the Cowboys, am I right? It's just like NBA, you don't like the Lakers. Can I get a whoop whoop? <laughs> Some of you right now are like, I don't care what you say from this point forward. I am not listening to a word. Hey, anyway, we're continuing our series called By Faith. We're, I don't know the segue for that, but we're go, we're, uh, uh, we've been going through the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And it's been so much fun going through that because basically it's just pointing us back to our Old Testament, all these Old Testament heroes. And we've been kind of connecting the dots, how they're all pointing to Jesus, and so I've been super excited about that. And so today, we're going to be looking at the character known as Moses. Moses. Now, if you remember the reason why, and by the way, if you've missed any of this uh, sermon series, you can go back to our website or YouTube or whatever and listen to it, watch it or whatever, or just read Hebrews 11. You can do that in like in a couple minutes and you're covered. Uh, but basically, the writer is writing this to the, to the Christians there who used to be Jewish people and they converted to Christianity. He's writing this letter to them to encourage and warn them to not turn away from Jesus. And what would be the reason why they would turn away from Jesus is because they're facing heavy persecution. They're facing persecution from their fellow brothers and sisters, Jews, trying to get them to turn away from the Messiah and turn back to them. And also, he's face, they're facing persecution from the Roman Empire. And the reason why is it was not okay to be a Christian during the Roman times and the Roman Empire of that, of that time period. And so the reason why is because they had a saying back then that was Caesar was Lord. They would say Caesar is Lord, and he wanted to be identified and known as the Lord. But here comes these Christians along the way, and they're like, no, Caesar is not Lord. They say Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, and that got them in all sorts of trouble. And so what the writer is trying to do right here is to remind them to endure and persevere in their faith, to not turn away from Jesus no matter what happens to them. And so he's going to be pointing them to Moses. And the cool thing about Moses, when you, when you think about Moses, Moses is like one of the big figures of the Old Testament. And the original recipients of this, who used to be Jews, would totally know Moses because Moses would be associated with what of the Old Testament? The law. And so they would be thinking about Moses and the law and turning away from Jesus and back to the law. And here's the thing about the law. The interesting thing about the law of God in the Old Testament, the law of God is God's perfect law to us, right? You would agree with that? And we are supposed to fulfill it perfectly, aren't we, right? How you doing with that? And so what the law does at the Old Testament, I think God intentionally sets it up this way, the law is kind of supposed to be this wall that we run into that eventually turns us back to Jesus because he's the only one who could fulfill the law perfectly. And so that's what Moses is going to do. And I think that's what the writer is trying to do. Is these people want to turn back to Judaism, uh, but he's showing them Moses. If you look at Moses and the law, it's just going to turn you right back to Jesus. So if you've got a Bible... Go to Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning, Hebrews 11. If you don't have a Bible, here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. And so uh, if you want one, we have them in a paper in English and Spanish at these two tables down at center point as well. And also if you have a smartphone, uh, you can download version and click events and all the Grace Point Church stuff will pop up today. But here, here's what I want to do today. I literally have five sermons in one. I don't know what time the Super Bowl starts but we're going to hope that we can get there because it's like, it's like five major 
blocks, like major stories of Moses' life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go by them one by one, and I'm going to use one word, and they're all going to start with P because that's just what pastors do, and they're all start with the same letter. And I'm just going to show you this, and we'll kind of walk through it, and we'll get to the end, and we're like, hooray, we'll go watch the Super Bowl. So that's what we're going to do. All right. So um, I'm going to give you five words to kind of show how Moses uh, lived by faith. So Hebrews 11, verse 23, are you there? Okay, you guys ready to do some work? All right, 23. By faith, if you remember, that's what the, the writer is saying over and over. Anytime he would talk about a character, he always says, by faith. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Real quick question. Who is the person living by faith in this verse? Right, it's not Moses because Moses is a baby and babies, last I checked, don't hide themselves like that. So it was, it was his parents. His parents live by faith. So the first word I want to give you is parents. Uh, what do we know about Moses' parents? Well, if you go back to Exodus, Exodus 2 in your Old Testament, you have to go there because I'll just kind of tell you the story. Uh, it's where we're first introduced to the birth of Moses. It says that both of his parents were from the tribe of Levi. If you fast forward to Exodus 6, you catch their names. His dad's name was Amram, and his mother's name was Jochebed. Those are fun Hebrew words to say. Uh, they also had a brother. His brother's name was, anybody want to know? Aaron, and then his sister was, man, you guys got this. Why am I preaching? You just guys get up here and do this, and we'll be done. No. Now, imagine what times were like for these two parents. It had to be really a big struggle for them, because remember, at this time in the, in the history of the people of the Old Testament, they're in Egyptian slavery, and so their parents were in Egyptian slavery, and their parents and grandparents and beyond beyond for multiple generations, almost 400 years of Egyptian slavery they had been under. So they were under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure and all that. Well, during this time, the Pharaoh, which would be the king of the land of Egypt, which, by the way, he thought of himself as a, as a god. So he, like this guy thought he was god. He noticed that the Hebrews, which was God people of time, that they were populating quite a bit. They were procreating, if you know what I mean. They were making babies. And so there were so many of these babies that he thought to himself, wait a minute, if there's more of them than us, they're going to overtake us and we're going to have a lot of trouble. And so he lays down a rule that all the midwives, the people helping people have babies, the Hebrews have babies, he gave them a rule that when you have a baby, you're going to throw them into the Nile to be crocodile food. That's messed up. But anyway, that's what he did. Uh, And so... Why? Well, because he didn't want them taking over. So Jochebed has this baby boy, and his name is Moses. Now go back to Hebrews eleven twenty three. It says, By faith, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Okay, look at the, te- the text right there. Why did they hide him? But, but from the text, because he was beautiful. That's funny. Like, what was it about Moses to what would, would incite this writer? And if you look back in Exodus, the story of him as well, to say that he is beautiful. I mean, like, is Moses going to win every county fair baby pageant or something like that? Is like the Hebrew Gerber baby. Like, wh- what does it mean that he was beautiful? Well, when you, when you really study that, we really don't know outside of we think there was something special about Moses. If you look at old historian by the name of Josephus back in the first century, he said that, uh, that the dad had a vision in the middle of the night that God told him uh, that this Moses is going to be the one who will deliver God's people. Now, that's not from inspired scripture, so we don't know it for sure. I'm not going to read the quote. We don't know it for sure, uh, but we somewhat, may, maybe, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But nonetheless, they thought something was significant about Moses. So, that, so they, they hatch a plan to save Moses. And so the mom... She takes and makes a little basket, 
and she puts like, you know, some stuff on it that's going to keep it from, from drowning, from sinking, and put Moses in it, and then sends him down the waterway towards someone's house. Whose house does he go towards? Anybody know? Pharaoh's daughter. That's, it's, so, it's so sneaky how they do this. And then Miriam kind of hides off in the distance a little bit watching all this go down. And then what happened? The Pharaoh's daughter, she reached down, she sees this baby. She is like blown away. Her heart and her face is melted apparently by Moses' beauty. She's like, oh my gosh, look at this little Hebrew baby boy. I must keep him. What shall I ever do with this baby? Here pipes up Miriam walking in. Hey, hey, you found a baby. Do you need anyone to nurse that baby? Do you need anyone to take care of that baby? And she's like, well, yes, I do. And so here we go. I've got a nursing mother just for you, which was who? Moses' mom. Like, that's the greatest plan ever. She got paid to raise her own kids. Some of us are like, yes, I'll take some of that money. Please. Now, mind you, the law of the land is to chuck these babies into the Nile and let the crocodiles eat them. So not only is Moses' parents defying the king Pharaoh, also Pharaoh's daughter is defying the king as well. Now, imagine the parents now get to raise Moses. Moses, his parents uh, get to raise Moses. So I could only assume, and, and I think we're right in assuming this, they taught him about the one true God. They taught him about the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and how to love God and how to revere God and how to worship God and all that. And I think they taught him that he will be the deliverer of, of the Hebrews. Now, you may say, well, how do I know that? If you fast forward to the New Testament in the book of Acts, Stephen is preaching, and he says this about Moses in Acts chapter 7.25. He says, Moses, he supposed that his brothers, that would be the Hebrews, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And so what Stephen was saying there in Acts was, like, Moses was telling them, like, hey, I know that I'm going to be the deliverer by my hands. God will, will use me. Now, let's think through this. His parents are raising Moses in this, this time period. Could you imagine how hard that would be to raise your child in the midst of almost 400 years of slavery? And yet they continue to invest in their child and pour into their child to trust God, trust God in his promises, trust, don't lose faith, don't lose hope in God. I mean, that's an important role parents play in the lives of their kids. Let me just ask, and you might want to, you might not want to, just by a show of hands, who in here would say, you know what, my parents, they taught me the faith. They showed me how to follow Jesus. They took me to church. They loved me. Well, who would just say, hey, my parents did that? Man, hey, all right, you can put your hands down. You know what, call your parents today if they're still alive and thank them. Like, just thanks be to God that they would do something like that and care for you. Now, what about the rest of us? Because some of us, we didn't raise our hands like, my parents didn't teach me anything about faith. Maybe they taught you about something different or something else. What should we do about that? And here's what I'm going to tell you. Listen, be gracious. Be kind. Like, don't be bitter. Like, maybe you've just met Jesus and your parents didn't teach you anything about Jesus and you want to get all bitter towards them. Look, bitterness, bitterness never works in life. It just doesn't. What, is, what does one person say, bitterness? Bitterness is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. It just doesn't work. And so be gracious to them, be kind to them. But here's what I would tell you. And, and here's the thing I've, I've tried to live by the best I can in life. And by the way, parents are not perfect, am I right? right. Did my kids say amen? Yeah, they did. <laughs> They're like, that's right, dad. You are the worst. I know. Um, but but here, here's the reality. If you didn't receive something as a child, it's a great opportunity for you, now that you have received it from the Lord, to pass it on to someone else. Just because you didn't receive it doesn't mean the next generation down doesn't have to receive it. Like, you, we, by the, the resurrecting power of Jesus, we can break bad cycles in our family. And one of those would be to love our kids well and teach them about Jesus. 
So what does that mean, parents? That mean, or guardian, that means uh, when it comes to your children, bring them to church and, and, and bring them around other Christians and teach them the Bible at home and read the Bible to them and pray with them and do all those and live out your faith realistically in front of them. So when mommy and daddy sin, and which we do, repent, confess that, say you're sorry. That's a great thing. So we see right here that Moses had parents investing in him, and that is very, very important. Got it? Okay, let's keep going. Like four of you got it. Cool. Let's keep going. Plowing ahead. Here we go. So we have uh, chapter 11, verse 23. 40 years pass after 24 and 25, and it says this. So 40 years have passed in Moses' life. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with, now this is a key phrase, the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses, remember, he was, he was raised primarily by his mom, by his natural parents. When he became an adult, he decided he not, did not want to be associated with the Pharaoh's family. Now, remember, the Pharaoh thought he was king, and so to be a part of that uh, family, you were royalty. That means you got whatever you wanted. You were rich. Like, nothing was, like, restricted from you. You got, I mean, you had fame and popularity. When you walked into a room or you walked into an area, people knew who you were, and everyone would applaud you. Now, on the other hand, if you were associated with the people of God back then, you were a slave. You were beaten. You were treated like a machine that would work seven days a week, and that you had whelps on your back from a whip, and you were just mistreated in horrific ways. And what the writer is doing here is saying, basically, Moses had two choices in life. He could either be a part of the royalty, where everything would be unlimited, unlimited power, unlimited sex, unlimited anything he wanted, or... You can associate with the people of God. And if you do, you're going to be mistreated. Which one would you choose? Some of us sitting here are like, I would be with the people of God. I'm like, well, I hope so, but we don't know that. We didn't have to make that decision. But right here we see that Moses did. And so the second word I have for us, the second kind of scene of this Moses story is people. Here's the reality. The reality is this. Who you align your life with is, is who you become. It's just kind of true, and he aligned himself with the people of God. But the question is, why was Moses so apt to leave all the riches and all the good of Egypt and to go be mistreated with his people? I think the next verse helps us on that. Look at verse 26. Moses, he considered the reproach, or like the scorn, or like people didn't like, the reproach of Christ, greater wealth. He like, like, like hear that, like the reproach of Christ was a wealth to him. It was like, it was like money. It was like riches, like, you know, Scrooge McDuck and his bank. You know what I'm talking about, swimming around in it. Okay. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It's like Moses had this sight, and we'll talk about this throughout the message, of like he could see beyond what was right in front of him. He could see a greater wealth. So what does this mean? How did Moses consider the reproach of Christ? And it's interesting the writer uses the word Christ Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is the Old Testament uh, terminology or office of the one who will come and fulfill the promises of God, okay? So he's not calling Jesus by name. He's saying the Messiah, the one who will come, which we find out is Jesus. So how did he know him hundreds of years before he came? Well, verse 25 says that Moses chose rather to be mistreated or the word is afflicted with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's not that Moses wanted to be mistreated or afflicted just for the sake of just, you know, like wanting to feel bad. No, he said basically he wanted to belong to the people of God and be afflicted with them. That's a big deal. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said it like this one time. He said, affliction, nobody would choose, but affliction with the people of God, ah, that is another business altogether. Affliction with the people of God is affliction in glorious company. With the people of God, that is the sweet which kills the bitter of affliction. When you are with the people of God, that is where God is working the most. We see it throughout his word. We see it throughout history. People, God works through and with his people. He dwells among us as we are together. As we are in our sorrow, as we are in our troubles and trials, as we're in our joy and our mess, God dwells with his people. And Moses had this choice of, do I just want to go off and do whatever I want to do and have the you know, royalty and everything right at my fingertips? Or will I belong to the people of God? And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, you kind of got a choice. Those were, remember, they were Jewish converts thinking about going back to Judaism. It's like, hey, you can go back or you can choose to stick with Christ, but it's going to cost you. You will suffer. Now, I did bring up the idea of how did Moses know that Jesus, hundreds of years before he came, well, everything Moses did and everything Moses wrote, the first five books of the Bible, is about Jesus. There's this scene in the gospel when Nathaniel and the disciples brought his brother Philip to meet Jesus, and he said this in John 145. It says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so he's like, Moses, everything Moses was talking about, even if Moses didn't understand it completely, was pointing to Jesus. Remember that scene in the gospel where Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration and there's two Old Testament characters standing beside him? Who are the two people standing beside uh, Jesus during that? Elijah and Moses. Moses. And so he knew, uh, he knew that like to follow God was to trust the Messiah. He knew that this was pointing ahead to something, to something greater. And he knew also that it was going to cost him. Siding with God and siding with God's people. Listen to me. I'm going to give you some fine print Christianity because sometimes Christianity is all about rainbows and cupcakes and sunshine and like everything's going to be great and God is awesome. No, God is awesome, but things are going to be terrible sometimes. It's going to cost you to follow Jesus. That's why Paul says something like this in Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You know what rubbish means in, um, in the original Greek? Doo-doo? I don't know. I'm trying to poop. I'm trying to think of the like, most technical term I can. Poop. It's like the strongest point. He's like, I count it all just garbage. We can go with that one too. In order that I may gain Christ. He's like, hey, I suffer everything. But just like Moses was saying, Paul's saying the same thing, that Jesus is the greatest reward. That's hard, isn't it? Suffering's hard. You want to hear, like, just give me that little nod. You say, hey, right now I'm going through suffering. Say, right now I'm suffering. Like, there's a lot going on in my life. Yeah. Could you imagine if God were to say, hey, I know you're suffering right now, but I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you 60 seconds in heaven. Could you imagine how, how much that would encourage us? Like, like that, would, that would really help us out, like 60 seconds in heaven. Imagine if he gave us 30 seconds to look at all the infrastructure of heaven and all the buildings on, maybe 20 seconds to reunite with a loved one we've lost. Maybe that's part of our suffering as well. Maybe if he just gives 20. Imagine if he gave us like 15 seconds to look at the garden and the city and how lush it would be and maybe shows us like for five, you know, five seconds our mansion, like what it's going to look like. Imagine if Jesus were to give us three seconds of uninterrupted eye contact. 
it just feels like, like that would help me get along in life a little bit better, wouldn't it? It would. But God's not going to give us that. He's not just, just like Moses, though. We have to see it. We got to see it here. We have to see it here just like Moses. He, he believed something beyond the suffering of the time. That's what it says in the text right there. He could look beyond that. How? Let me, let me show you. Look what it says in verse 27. It says, by faith, he, being Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, let me unpack this a little bit. Uh, Moses left Egypt how many times? Twice. Remember? There's two, there's like, which time is he talking about right here? Is it the first time when he killed the Egyptian the taskmaster because they were beating a Hebrew brother? Remember that scene? He killed him. He's like, oh, I killed a guy. And somebody kind of ratted him out like, this is not good. Is it the first time or is it the second time going through the Exodus? I think there's a lot of scholarly debate on this, but I think that it's the first time. He's talking about the first exit. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews has done such a great job up to this point, leaving everything in chronological order. And so here in just a little bit, he's going to talk about the, the, the big exodus, you know, the parting of the Red Sea. So I think he's talking about the first time he left here where he heads out to the wilderness for 40 years. He's like outside of Egypt for 40 years. Now, look back to the text. It says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The point the writer is trying to make here is that fear must be met with faith. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Think about just the fear we have in life, all the fear that comes at it. But it, it, right here is saying that it must be met with faith. And I think that's why the writer of Hebrews is pointing us to this story because of the fear going on with the Christians at that time of like, hey, they're fearing persecution from Rome. Hey, they're fearing persecution from their brother and sisters. Like, hey, it must be met with fear. Even fear of Caesar, just like Moses could have had a fear of Pharaoh. Uh, John Knox is one of the reformers. And during the Reformation time, he was in Scotland. And uh, the Queen of Scotland was like uber Catholic and did not like the Reformation whatsoever. And so people were, he was just doing a lot to stir the pot. And someone asked him this. He said, he said uh, how, how do you stand not being afraid of the Queen of Scotland? He said this. He says, one does not fear the Queen of Scotland when he has been on his knees before the King of Kings. And that's the whole, man, that's some spiritual mooing there. Okay. Mm, it's true. It's true. I love that. It's true. It's so true, though. Like, we always feel like, well, I'm just all alone. Like, you plus God is always the majority. You're going to be okay. I think Moses kind of caught that. Like, me and God together, we're the majority. I know there's Egypt, and they got their big army and all that, but me and God together, majority. It really washes away the fear. But I think there's a third word here I want to talk about, the reason why he could live without fear. And I think the third word is perception. Did you notice in the text, it says, in verse 27, it said, uh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Who is he talking about? Moses is talking about God. He can see God. Now, here's the reality. Make sure you understand this. God is invisible. So it's not that he saw God with his naked eye. He had a, just his faith. He could see God. He, he could, he's incapable with his own eyes to see God, but by faith he could know that, like, I can see what God is doing. I can see and know that God is with me. Remember that whole text in the New Testament says we walk by what, not by what? Walk by faith and not by what? That's what Moses had going on. I want to come back to this in just a minute. I'm going to put that on the shelf. Let's keep going, verse 20. I want to talk about perception in just a minute. It's going to matter. Verse 28. You still with me? Okay, verse 28. By faith, 
He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Our fourth word is Passover. Many of you probably, if you've been in church for a while, you're familiar with Passover. I'll explain a little bit. The writer of Hebrews is pointing the recipients as well as us back to the first Passover. You remember that scene where Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. And they do this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And God's like, enough. I'm going to send plagues. And so he sends all these 10 plagues. You probably have seen the You've probably seen the story or or heard of the story. He sends like the first nine plagues, which is interesting. You can go do this research on your own. The first nine plagues are like kind of making fun of some of the gods of Egypt. Like you can read into that. It's kind of fun. But the last plague is the death of your firstborn. That's that's no joke right there. And and there was no uh, discriminating on this. It was the death of the firstborn Egyptian, death of the firstborn Hebrew, God's people. And it even says the cows. I don't know why the Bible says it but the death of the firstborn cattle, it says it right there. Uh, Yet, here's the thing about God. God always provides a way out for those who will trust him. Did you know this? Some way, either in this life or the next, but he does. Uh, He provides a way out. And so he says, hey, in order to not be destroyed and lose the firstborn, what you need to do is you need to take a, a, a lamb, a spotless lamb, a young lamb, a beautiful lamb, an innocent lamb, and you need to slit its throat. And then you need to take a little brush. You need to take the brush and you dip it in the blood and you're going to paint the outside of your, your door like this. Do you see that motion? And when the angel of death or the destroyer comes by, he's going to, clever, pass over your home and go to the next and see if the blood is there as well. And so that's exactly what happened. But anyone that would trust the provisions of God like that, uh, they would be passed over. But if you did not trust God's provisions, and you thought, well, I'll do something else on my own. I'll just be a good person, and then God will see that. Or I'll just kind of believe something, and God will see that. Or I'll just have faith in something. But, you know, God just knows the sincerity of my heart. You know, any of those people, it didn't count. Why? Because that wasn't God's provisions. God's provisions where you take an innocent lamb, slaughter it, and do the blood. Now, obviously, if you've been in church for two seconds, you know what that's pointing to, right? It's pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the young, innocent lamb who was destroyed for us, and his blood is what covers us now, where God passes over us because of our sin, because Jesus has covered us. And so what he's pointing to right there is Jesus. The recipients of the letter would understand this thoroughly. The point is that Moses and Israel so believed God that they obeyed God to the letter. And if you look into the story in Exodus, Moses said, Moses believed so much, he's like, hey, yeah, this whole Passover thing, we're going to do it every year. You know what that means? This is while they're still in slavery. Like Moses like, yeah, we're going to do it every year from now on. He knew that God would, would, would deliver them. He believed it. He, he didn't see it yet, but he believed it. He, he believed God at his word. Now, regardless of how well Moses' generation understood the full meaning of the Passover lamb, the connection would have been quite clear to those Christians listening to it. Uh, John Chrysostom, he said it like this. He says, if the blood of a lamb then preserved the Jews unhurt in the midst of the Egyptians and in the presence of so great a destruction, much more will the blood of Jesus, of Christ, save us, for whom it has been sprinkled not on our doorposts but on our souls. For even now the destroyer is still moving around in the depths of night, but let us be armed with Christ's sacrifice since God has brought us out of Egypt from darkness and from idolatry. This is what Moses had faith in, and this is what we place our faith in, the provisions of of God through the Passover lamb, Jesus. I got one more story. Verse 29, you still with me? I mean, we're just going through this whole guy's life just in a matter of 40 minutes. It's crazy. Verse, verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land 
But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Okay, who's living by faith in this scenario? The people. All right, let's, let's, let's have some fun with this. That's generous. The people live by faith. Do you know the people that, he, that uh, Moses took out of that place? And right here, the Hebrew writer's like, yeah, yeah, they live by faith. That's really, that's really generous. Moses, uh, he was the one trusting the promise of God. So our, our fifth and final word is promise. Uh, let, let me set the scene here. So Passover's happened. Uh, it, the Egypt is just, there's just moaning and wailing and lamenting throughout the land. So many people have lost their firstborns. It's such a sad scenario. And, and, and Pharaoh is just defeated at this point. He looks at Moses. He's like, y'all got to get out of here. Like, I'm done with you all. And some scholars believe it's like maybe a million people, maybe two million people. It's a lot, I don't know. It's debatable, but it's a lot of people. And so they leave, and they leave with some roadies as well. They give them all kinds of food and, and all kinds of stuff. It's great. And so they leave, and they're heading out. And all of a sudden, Moses kind of has this, this, this moment of clarity of like, wait a minute. I'm losing my labor force. I don't like this. And they're you're not going to beat me. I'm Pharaoh. I'm the king. I feel like I'm a god. And so what does he do? He gets his whole army, and they go, you know, barreling down after them. And so, like, now uh, Israel is on the run, and they're running away from uh, Egyptian army. And so, like, they've got no weapons. They've got nothing to defend themselves. And so they're a bunch of them, maybe a million, two million people are walking out, you know, running out of there. Here comes the Egyptian army barreling down on them. And then they're met with the Red Sea. And they're like, great. So now they have a choice. Turn around and try to fight, which they will absolutely get destroyed. Or... We're going to go out into the Red Sea, and we're going to drown. What do we do? Now, they turn to Moses, because Moses is the leader of all this. As grateful as they can, and as terrible as they can, they say this. This is what they say to Moses. It, they said to Moses, it is because you are, but it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us and bring us out of Egypt? Is it not that this we said to you in Egypt, let us alone that we may serve Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Oh, my gosh. Like, they've been under 400 years of slavery. And Pharaoh, right before all this, he put down a new rule of, like, hey, you've got to make your own bricks. And, like, it just made labor even harder for them. Moses, I'm sure, cracks his knuckles, pops his necks, takes a breath, like, and says this. Verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. So remember, he's the one that could see, and he's like, now you need to see as well. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. I love verse 14 because I think it's his jab. jab. He says, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. He's like, shut I will turn this car around. <laughs> You're a parent, you know. Uh, so God gives him the instructions, put the staff in the water, and what happens? The waters open up, and God's people, million, two million people, start walking through it as on dry ground, the Bible says, wall to wall, water beside them, and they're trotting through there, but guess what's happening? So is uh, the Egyptian army. They're following after them. And the story goes like this. The, God's people get out of there, and they walk all the way on dry land. The wheels of the chariots and the people get stuck, the Egyptians, and the waters go in on them, and they're toast, done. Interesting, interesting, interesting. The same thing that provided salvation for some crushed the others. 
Just an interesting observation right there. The same thing that God provided to save some, destroyed the enemies. Feels a little bit like the Moses story, or the uh, Noah story, doesn't it? Just, just, just a tad. But God's way in that moment was the only way to be saved. God provided a way through the Passover and provided a way through this event here. And we always must follow God's way of deliverance to the T. That's why Jesus said something in John 14, 6. It's very, very important. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Meaning that is the provisions that we have to be you know, reconciled to God. It's only through Jesus. It's not through religion. It's not through our good works. It's not because we're better than someone else. It's because of Jesus. Jesus. Now, there's the five pictures of Moses. Got 11 minutes. Here we go. What does all this mean? Or how do we tie all this together? What is at the heart of Moses' trust in God? And here's what I think it is. Number one. Moses lived with a God awareness. Did you know this? Notice that? Moses was always aware of God's activity in his life. Even when he was young with his mom and dad doing the whole, you know, switcheroo with him and the Pharaoh and leaving and, and the Passover. And he was always in tune. He had this, this God awareness about him at all time. He was aware of God. Isn't that what we are supposed to have as well? Is, doesn't that, isn't that what makes us believers? or Christians, or people who follow Jesus, is that we have an awareness of God. Let me, let me give, you, give it to you in a statement like this. Isn't all of life just trying to figure out how to live in the presence of God, trusting his promise? What, does that kind of summarize the Christian life? We're trying to figure out in our lives, our everyday, every minute life, how to live in the presence of the Almighty while trusting his promise that Jesus loved us, Jesus died for us, Jesus resurrected for us, Jesus ascended for, you know, to the right hand of the Father and will return. We're all trying to live in the presence of God, that God is present with us now. We have to see him, though. So how do I see him and how I trust him? Well, as I said earlier, be reminded, God is invisible, isn't he? But the Bible does say this. If you are in Christ, you have eyes to see, ears to hear, you know this, and a heart to understand. We have our eyes of faith, our ears of faith, and our heart of understanding of faith is going to look at this world differently than, than people who do not follow Jesus. It's true, right? Of course, it's going to look completely different. We can see with spiritual eyes, not with physical eyes, with spiritual eyes, and hear with spiritual ears, and with a heart that has been brought to life, we know God in a world around us that doesn't. We can see God when our, when our employers don't employ. And we can see God when our coworkers don't. We can see God when our family members or friends who don't know Christ cannot see him. We can see. We see him and hear him and understand him and his ways. You and I live our lives and make decisions based on the fact that we can see God and that he can see us. There's this Latin phrase that I love. It's called quorum deo. You know what quorum deo means? It means in the face of God or in the presence of God. And so you and I, if you're in Christ, we live in the presence of God. We live in the face of God, in his presence. In light of that, our lives are not going to make complete sense to those who do not. Why? Because we live in the presence of God. Our attitudes towards life is going to be completely different than those who don't follow Christ. Do you believe that? Our motives, our relationships, our loves, our devotions, 
the pace in which we live life is going to be different. Everything about our life is going to be different. Why? Because we understand that we live in the presence of God. God is always there with us. And he is a living and active God. And to live in the presence of God is to live your entire life trusting his promises and his provisions and knowing that he is with us. That whatever we do, we are under the watchful eye of God. Now, when you hear that, when you hear that you can't hide from God, it causes a little bit of fear in you, doesn't it? But if you're in Christ, that fear can be removed because there's no more guilt and shame because Jesus took that on the cross 2,000 years ago. So now we understand that God is sovereign and the highest goal we can have in life is to honor him and to, and to live for him and to glorify him. That's what it means to live in the presence of God. You know those little Bible verses that are super popular and we'll put them on, you know, those, those nice little plaques in our home or it goes nice on a coffee mug? Do you know those things actually mean something? Like, like Romans 12, very well-known verse. Romans 12, 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice. Can I translate that? Live as if you're living in the face of God, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That, those verses mean something, that we live as living sacrifices before God in the face of God. Or, or Matthew 6, 33, when Jesus famously said this, he says, but seek first the what? We have a kingdom and a king that we live before anything else in this world. Seek it first and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. When you think about Moses' story, who else beside Christ lived that out better than him? I just feel like that, that dude understood what it meant to live in the face of God. I'll tell you a second thing about Moses I think is applicable to us is this. Uh, Moses, it seems to me, he did not compartmentalize his life. Because, you know, that, that kind of choice moment where, like, hey, you're going to be with Egypt or you're going to be with the mistreated with the people of God, he's like, easy, people of God. Like, he had no compartment. It wasn't like he had a religious life and a regular life, or he had Sunday time, but the rest of life is my time, or this is sacred and this is secular. There, there was no dividing whatsoever. See, sometimes we wonder why our hearts are marked with inconsistencies and disharmony, confusion, conflict and contradiction and chaos, it's probably because we have a divided life. It's probably because part of our life, we want to live in the presence of God, but in the other part of life, we don't want God to be anywhere around him, all right? Um, I'm kind of a car person by default because you got to work on cars. And so I've got an old classic car, and here's the thing about cars. You can modify them, do a lot of different things to them. One of the things you could put on an old car is called a kill switch. You know what a kill switch is, right? It's basically... You can hide like a little toggle switch under the dash somewhere that will basically make your car where it will not run. No matter what anyone does to it, it will not run. It's called a kill switch. Here's the thing about God. God has installed a kill switch in humanity. And when we try to live outside of his presence, the kill switch is on. It is. Everything that we do outside of the presence of God will eventually shrivel up and die, figuratively or literally. Literally. You and I know that from experiences in our life, don't we? You ever try to uh, do marriage without God? You ever, you ever try to do your finances without God? You ever try to parent without God? Some of you, you ever do college without God? Relationship without God? Dating without God? Scheduling without God? I've got a great counselor in my life. His name is Pastor Tim, or we call him Rabbi Tim around here. 
Whenever I'm doing something dumb and I'll try to explain myself to him in some dumb way, he'll be like, how's that working for you? Some of you have met with Pastor Tim before like, yeah, he said that to me too. How's that working for you? I mean, think about it. Kill switch is, is on. You know, put that in perspective. Think about how, how life is going right now. We as humans are the most advanced we've ever been, aren't we? We've got technology. We're the most virtually connected and digitally connected than ever before. It's the most individualistic and personal, expressive time ever. People can do whatever and be whatever they want to. We have the most personal freedoms ever know, ever, ever than ever before. Even the theme song of humanity right now, I would, I would call it, I would, I would pull the theme song of humanity from the Disney movie, Frozen. The song would be, Let It Go. And the line goes like this. It's time, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> it's, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. But as humans, are we? Because we don't look free. I mean, like you look, depression, anxieties are on a rise, suicide and, and uh, divorce, just personal peace, all of that addictions, like, it doesn't look like we're free. You know why? There's this kill switch involved in life that God has put there lovingly and graciously. Why, why would God do that? Because life does not work or flourish apart from living in the presence of God. It, it just, it doesn't. And so lovingly and mercifully, he puts that kill switch there to where you'll, you'll end up at a dead end to where you will hopefully turn around and trust him and love him. See, that's why I said earlier, all of our life is just trying to figure out how do we live in the presence of God, trusting his promise. We need to see God. So here's my question. Can you see God? Can you hear God? Can you understand? Do you have a heart of understanding for God? Some of you hear that, and you're like, uh, I don't know what that means. How, how do you do that? How, how do you hear God and see God and have a heart of understanding? Number one, you've got to trust Jesus. If you've never trusted Jesus, meaning you've not given your life to Christ or made him your Savior or trusted his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, return on your behalf, or whatever, that, become a Christian, like, that's a do not pass go, do not collect $200 situation right there. And so, like, you must trust God. But then, then after that, after that, pray every day. You want to see, you want to hear, you want to have a heart on it, pray. There's a breath prayer that, I, that uh, we're going to practice in just a second. It's just a breath prayer is like a really short prayer that you can kind of think through and ponder on all day and just ask God all day. It's a great prayer for us. And the prayer goes like this. God, give me eyes to see, give me ears to hear, and give me a heart of understanding. It's something that you can just, God, give me ears, give me eyes to see. Like you can just walk through life just thinking that in your mind, going through school, going through your work, going in your homes. God, give me eyes to see. Where are you at? What are you doing? What's going on? Give me ears to hear. I want to I hear from your word, because that'd be the other thing. Get in your word. Know how God is. Know what he's like. Know what he likes. Know what he dislikes. Know how he moves. Some of you say, well, Ty, this, this sounds really hard. Like trying to be aware and attentive, have a God awareness in my life. This sounds really hard. I, I just really don't have time for that. I'm a busy person, and I would just respond to you, okay, how's that working for you? God, God did install a kill switch. And what if we were a people they got really serious about being in the presence of God with our lives. Not like you got to shave your head weird and go wear burlap out in the desert somewhere. No, no, no. But like you just, just lived it. 
quietly, perfectly, peacefully. Like, God, you're, you're here. God, you're at work. God, everything's bad, but I know you're going to make something good out of it. God, would you give me eyes to see, ears to hear, and heart to understand? Here's what I'm going to do before we take the Lord's Supper together. I just want to have some silence together. Many of us, we just don't have any silence in our lives. It's just chaos. But at least we can come together in this space, in the presence of God together and have silence. So I'm going to have a little silence. I'm going to put that prayer up on the screen to where if you just need a little help, and just where you're at in your mind or your heart, it's like, God, would you, would you help me be aware of you? Would you give me eyes to see, ears to hear, heart to understand? And I'll bring us out of it in prayer in just a minute, and we'll, uh, we'll go to the Lord's table together. So let's, let's take a little silence. God, thank you for meeting us in silence. Would you continually give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand? Lord, it's so easy to be distracted in the world and our lives run wide open at a thousand miles an hour. Would you slow us down? Would you attune our hearts to you? Your word says that you're always at work. Help us to be aware of that. And as you do that, God, would you bring peace to our souls? Would you bring joy in the middle of suffering? Would you give us hope in the midst of despair? Would you remind us that your promises are good today and tomorrow as they were in the past? And that we can trust you. And Father, I pray also for my friends in the room. They're here and they've not trusted you. They've tried to live outside of your presence. God, you're, you're, you're good at bringing people from death to life. And so God, by your grace, and by your mercy, would you save? Would you give them faith in Christ where they may have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand? And God, as you do this, Would you bring us great unity together as a people? Would you help us to go into the world and be light in these dark places? May it be great for our souls. May it be good for the world around us. May it be to the embarrassment of the enemy. And Jesus, may it be for your glory and your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you guys so much for being here. This is our time to